Hello, hello, and welcome to the Sound Girls podcast. I am your host, Rebecca Wilson. And in this episode, we sat down with Salim Akram, the monitor engineer for Billie Eilish and Phineas. We talked about how he got his unbelievable gig, some of the hardships he had when he first started. Plus, we go into some pretty nerdy tech stuff about their setup and workflow. But honestly, the coolest moments of our conversation was when he talked about what separates the good monitor engineers from the ones that keep their jobs. And it's likely not what you think. So after talking with Salim, it's truly no surprise that he works for one of the biggest pop stars in the world. I hope you get as much out of the conversation as I did. So without further ado, here is Salim Akram. So welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So how's it going? Are you in Nashville? Yes, I am in Nashville. Uh, me and my fiance just bought a house and moved in the middle of our break of the two, the leg tour for Billy. It ended, uh, I want to say like the last week in February. So I pretty much went home, packed up all my stuff, proposed to my now fiance, <sighs> put everything in a truck, drove all the way to Nashville, moved everything in and then left for seven and a half weeks and just got home two weeks ago. <laughs> That's so rock and roll. I love it. it it's crazy because everybody, which I've realized now that everybody that's had some type of life moment and ultimately buying a house or something along those lines or a move or something, it's for everybody on the crew, it's always happened in the middle of a break. So our breaks are not breaks. <laughs> Depending on who the person is, they always do some type of crazy change your life move in the middle of when you're supposed to be resting. That's right. It feels like you never are get actual rest when you're on tour. It's funny. I don't know why. When you're off tour. Yeah, I remember where my light switches are. and just. I, I call it life, life admin. I am the king of <laughs> let's make an errand out of like a day of nothing. It's like, wow, I might need to go to... I'll create a reason to go to CVS, Home Depot or something on a, when I'm home on a day off. Life admin. <laughs> I'm going to use that. But yeah, I, I can't take credit. Andrew, the, uh, the drummer, pretty much dubbed that phrase the first time I heard it. I'm like, oh, I have to use that. Yep. Life admin. Now it's to me and now it's to all our <laughs> listeners. I love it. It's in movement. So I'd love, uh, Salim, you to start off with kind of how did you get into audio? Well, I started off as a musician, and I think like the full, full backstory of you know recording as a, a band guy, the experience of recording in a studio and not being able to speak the language to the engineer was pretty, pretty frustrating. Essentially, you know, and you could kind of see the the lack of communication between trying to tell somebody, "Hey, I want that snare to sound like this," or I wanted to, you know, saying something like, oh, "I want to sound like the apocalypse" is like not an acceptable way to describe <laughs> how you want something to sound. And not being able to speak that language to an engineer kind of was the initial inspiration. I said, hey, I kind of want to learn how to do some studio stuff so I can do this on my own. And when I finished high school, I didn't immediately go right to college. So I had kind of like a year and a half off to figure out, well, what's next? And I was doing music, writing a lot of songs. I think just trying to create my own music started the, hey, I know how to like basically pass audio to actually get signal to get songs recorded, but it sounds absolutely atrocious. How do I take this? You know, how do I level up essentially? So I went to the Art Institute in New England to learn how to do audio to get all the technical stuff. And that's kind of where I learned how to actually do audio on like the most traditional, you know, sine waves, all the super, super nerdy stuff, yeah. but also combining it with the creative stuff as well too, that allows you to make music. 
And then my touring career as a musician, I was a freelance audio guy. So essentially when I was off of tour, I was doing some version of either corporate audio. I worked in the club as a house guy, I had a couple of days a week that I would just, you know, those are my shifts and whatever band was there, four or five bands, load them in, sound check them. It's like a 500 cap venue. Yeah. And then right around the time that venue closed, uh, Royale, which is owned by, it's privately owned, but Bowery Boston, when they first moved to Boston, essentially just started to do shows. That venue, basically, I became one of the house guys there. So I kind of graduated to a 1500 cap venue, digital consoles, profiles, the whole trajectory. So I was a healthy mix of touring as an en- a musician. And then when I was home off of tour, working freelance, doing audio, because that allowed me to tour as a musician and make money and have like my own schedule, et cetera. And then over the course of time, and my band didn't make any money. <laughs> well, t- you, did you play guitar? You're a guitarist, right? Yeah, I'm a guitarist. Yeah. Playing in a band called Bad Rabbit. We're still active, just not touring. I um, just haven't really done a lot of music stuff. But the Billy thing, basically, that was the transition of, oh, I'm like a, a full-time audio guy now, I guess. I'm off of the road musically now. I'm head first into this touring on the audio side. Sure. Give me a little background. So you went from working at this 1500 cap to touring with Billy and Phineas, which is a huge, huge gig. I saw the Coachella show. Okay. I have so many questions about that show. That was insane. There was like a hundred dancers or it looked like it. I mean, is that the set that you guys are touring with or that's a whole different one-off rehearsals thing? So we did a bunch of festival shows for Billy in the fall so I think a lot of that production was used for that in terms of the aesthetic. I think it was, you know, probably might have come from a different vendor. But I think the actual aesthetic and how, you know, you have to slim down your like your actual arena headlining show to fit within the confines of, you know, a festival production. They pretty much had that already sorted out from all the festivals she had done in the fall. I see. But there was a group of rehearsals that we did after the forum, like her three forum shows. We pretty much loaded all the gear out from her actual headlining show, it went all in slow boats wherever it needed to go overseas to get ready for this next leg. And then they brought in all the Coachella set pieces, festival stuff. And then we actually did a week-ish of rehearsals for all the Coachella stuff. I was going to say, because there's no, it felt like a one-off specialty, but that makes sense that you have a festival rig set up and all that. But so, okay, walk me back to how you went to working from a club venue to how did you get the gig with Billy? Well, so the connection ultimately came from Brian Marquis, Billy's tour manager, who I had known pretty much through mutual friends through the Boston music scene. And then my band had done Warp Tour in 2014, and he was running the acoustic basement stage where essentially we did an acoustic, we did like our full on full band set on Warp Tour every day. And then we would do a 30 minute acoustic set in Brian's tent, essentially every day on Warp Tour. And we kind of stayed in touch. And like at that time, I had just bought a little Midas M32 with a little bit of money that we had. I'm like, All right, I'm going to rent this console out when I'm home, you know, bought a little set of speakers, et cetera. And that was like my, you know, hey, if you get me as an audio guy, the package on top of it is I have a console and speakers, et cetera, to kind of make a little bit of extra money um, when I was home. And basically the last, like one of the parting things he told me, he like vividly remembered this was like, when we left on Warp Tour, we had a good relationship with just homies. I was like, hey, man, if you ever need a monitor guy, I got my own console at home. Just let me know if you ever need a guy. I'm looking to get back on the road. And then three or four years had gone by. We kind of stayed in touch loosely. He was working for, I think, Juliette Lewis and her like personal music rock stuff that she was doing. And 
I think when he started working with Billy, it was just her mom, her dad, her brother, and then the merch person and Ari. Uh, I'm sorry, wow. Ari the merch girl and him. What they didn't gig. have any crew or anything. Yeah. So essentially like from the grassroots and then when they officially were like, hey, we're doing festivals. This is a bummer out here. You know, the house guy, et cetera. We should get a monitor guy to do this run of festival shows. And he just happened to remember that conversation and hit me up one day. was like, hey, would you be interested in, I got this pop gig, this artist tours with their mom and dad kind of <laughs> needs more of like a personality finesse versus like, hey, can you mix monitors finesse? And I remember you're a good dude, good hang. So would you be interested? Money's not great, but you know, whatever. At least we get to hang out and have some beers. I'm like, sure, let's do it. And that was four years ago, like right around now. <laughs> that is an unbelievable turn. Yeah. So she goes from touring with her mother and father to like one of the world's biggest artists so quick. And yeah, they're still on tour with her the day to day. Like her dad is part of the crew. Her mom kind of helps with like all the A party, like personal assistant um stuff so it, it's obviously grown to what it is but it started essentially with just a couple of homies in a van to what it is now and i think that whole vibe is still prevalent in like the, the actual crew to this day which is great that's beautiful so i guess specifics if you could talk a little bit about what you do for her cuz your setup it seems so unusual. I mean, there, I saw there was a live drummer. I don't know if that's for the tour, but there's live drummer, there's Phineas, there's her. And then what else is going on up there? Because there's got to be so much. Yeah. So there's a ton of things going on. I think input wise for like what I see in the monitor console, it's funny. We just did an article um, in Live Sound that came out that talked about all this stuff, which is great. So the timing of this podcast is perfect because oh, it's good. all like, the mystique of kind of how this show with three people, how is all this stuff happening? It's 64 show inputs, essentially, which is a live drummer. We have 12 inputs of live drums. There's a lot of MIDI changes. There's a lot of automation. And Phineas plays a lot of the keyboards, the pianos, the bass. Everything ultimately is playing live. Like, it's crazy. If you kind of zoom in and watch, like, Andrew, he'll map out all of his MIDI changes to MIDI pads. So, you know, a sample of like a, a rim click or some type of like little bell and whistle that's in Phineas's production that easily you could just, the least path resistance would be to put it in the tracks and just let it play through. But he'll map out all the MIDI and play it on actual like pads and the wow. sounds will change throughout the song. So everything you're seeing, even though it's like, I guess in air quotes, because it's probably beginning audio for this is that it's, you know, to track. So there's, but somebody's actually playing all that live, which I think is, I'd say probably more automation than track heavy, even though obviously there is tracks in the background and whatnot. But it's very, very fascinating and intentional how much intent is put into making their show so musical. And I think that's probably like the biggest, I don't know if it's even a misconception or people are talking about in that context, but the mystique behind the show is like, I think between her, the MD and Phineas and everybody, there's so much intent behind making the show musical that I don't think a lot of people understand how much of it actually like comes from her if that makes sense yeah absolutely because so the trend is so often just track artists for someone that's just vocal heavy so it's great to hear this so then how about as far as that set looked ginormous as far as throw so she's in front of house a lot and how are you guys running mixes and rf and things like that it seems i saw a picture it looked like there was a ton of rf stuff that you had yeah so we have uh, we have a local antenna. We have one basically down by the bottom of the stairs where she was going by. And then there's another set up by front of house, which they call them the little batons. 
little sure sticks that they use to kind of the omnidirectional microphone. So our coverage is basically trying to cover the furthest point when she's in the arm, because I think I don't have the number off the top of my head, but it was further than you'd expect <laughs> from monitors or where actually locally on stage, I want to say maybe upwards of 150, 200 feet yeah. to the arm where she's actually extended out in front of the crowd. So Coachella was the environment is challenging just because, you know, on your headlining show, that distance is only 75 feet. You're in a controlled environment. So I guess the the thing that I will say relative to RF and like the challenges that Coachella presented is that during our own show, we're aware of all the variables, but we also control the outcome of them and we kind of mitigate them. Coachella, you know, there's at any point, we had the luxury of headlining, which is great, but there's still other bands headlining. So, you know, our show is, you know, 50 channels of RF on a good day, but there's, there's also, you know, any other headliners. So there's 125, 130, 150 channels of RF going on and like, if somebody doesn't follow the rules of not turning the RF on right. or it goes rogue, <laughs> a lot can go wrong. So yeah. for us, it's mostly coverage, I think, is basically like the biggest thing. The coverage and the cleanliness and knowing what the environment actually is. And like Hugo, like our RF and monitor tech, he's incredible at, I think, doing the technical aspect of it and understanding, like, hey, this is what we need to cover and making it happen and in a way that's autonomous, where there's no, the coverage is actually what the environment is, if that makes sense. It's kind of hard yeah. to... No, it is, because because you, there are so many other artists there that have RF, and so to just fit in where where you need it, that's unbelievable. So then you have your monitor tech, too, and they're, they're the RF tech as well. Yeah. So have you ever had her in-ears just go out while she's out there? Yeah, I've had... I try to mitigate it, but like I said, I think before we had the luxury of basically bringing all of our own gear, because I was just mentioning before, we've always started with like a, a smaller rig. We were traveling with our own self-contained small rig and trying to, like I said, control all the variables. The biggest thing at one point, we didn't have the luxury to have rechargeable batteries. And when you go overseas, because we were still handballing stuff on planes and like we hadn't really graduated to, hey, ship everything over Carnage. And the container and our production manager can handle all of like the logistics of, hey, lithium ion batteries can't go here or like what the protocol was. So you'd have to run the risk of them just taking your, you know, rechargeable sure batteries or rechargeable just energizer batteries, et cetera. Right. So we showed up overseas and they took our batteries. We didn't have any spare ones. So we had to basically get all of our batteries sourced from the local audio company. At this point, we weren't traveling with any of our RF. Um, so we had to get all that from like the local vendors' backlines. And for me, at that point, I had 32 packs and, you know, upwards of 16 channels of wireless. So you can't QC it fast enough. It's just, I hope it's going to work. And you wouldn't think that somebody would give you like the dollar store Maxwell batteries, <laughs> or you wouldn't think if you were to put those in a pack, send them out on the stage and you have so much other stuff to worry about. So five minutes, maybe 10 minutes into like her set. They died. The batteries died. She's looking over oh, at God. me like, I don't hear anything. What happened? I'm like, what? What's going on? And I'm like, oh, no. And then she's like, I don't hear anything. So I had to run out. She's all the way on the edge of the thrust. Of course she was. <laughs> I had to run out there. And like, essentially, she doesn't, she just keeps performing. So she's got me pretty much like on a leash trying to like <laughs> change the batteries in her pack while she's still performing. So yes, we've had issues with stuff like completely dropping out, but it's more that was, I'd say, wasn't relative to RF. It's probably more relative to, you know, a crappy set of batteries. Growing pains. Yeah. No, I've had yeah. that happen too. And the battery, as a, as sound people, that's kind of the worst tail between the legs. Even if they were just junk batteries, which you, there's no way you would know, it's the worst thing to have to tell an artist. <laughs> yeah. So like, what happened? The batteries died. It's like, and it's one of those things where like, 
if the batteries die, it brings up the, well, did you put fresh ones yeah, in? And I in know. that scenario, you wouldn't think that, you know, within five minutes or 10 minutes that the batteries would die. I'm like, no. No, I swear. Like, I, we ha- I swear I changed the batteries. And then so, luck- unfortunately, we had this guy, James Small, was incredible tech as well too he actually works for Coldplay now but he was like our local guy that we had gotten from Wigwam as like hey this is the tech you're going out on this weekend run and you know he had changed the batteries that's just like something yeah the tech changes the batteries or it's one of the the order of operations in terms of how much stuff we had to do I'm walking the packs he put in fresh batteries I'm like dude did you change the batteries I know you're sharp but did you, I just have to ask for my own peace of mind you changed the batteries right he's like I swear man I put in brand new ones I'm like okay I believe you, but tomorrow, I'm, don't take this personally, but I'm going to put the batteries yeah. in myself. So it happens again. <laughs> I can actually at the very least go to the her and say, hey, I personally changed these batteries myself. I knew they were fresh. And there are, I have literally gotten those before the rechargeable. Sometimes they're just at the end of their lives and you don't yep. know it until they just start dying or there's one that's just a little lower. So anyways, we could go on and on, but that's the Murphy's Law, right? What happened? Batteries. <laughs> The batteries die. And it's it's so crazy because like I, my whole approach to this type of stuff, particularly when monitors is like, I think they understand how much production goes into like making a show happen. They're where things can go wrong. And my approach is to try to make sure as much stuff doesn't go wrong or if it might go wrong or if a situation where I might feel uncomfortable that, hey, this this might be out of my control, make them aware of it. So anything is kind of preemptive versus an excuse if it goes wrong. It's like, kind of like, my job to prep them on all the things that can go wrong. So if they if it does go wrong or if it does happen, it doesn't sound like an excuse. It's like, hey, I try to control this. There's so many people, no matter how good you are, what you do, you can't account for a battery dying or a stage hand unplugging the power supply or something along those lines. But if it happens six days in a row, yeah, you're probably doing something wrong. You're going to get fired. But if those little small things that you can't control, they're aware of how much can go wrong and they're aware that we can mitigated as much as possible. So like it's more of, like I said, it doesn't sound like an excuse if it does go wrong. That's absolutely great advice for everybody. And also I would imagine since she's out in front of house, she could probably hear the house too, why her monitors were down. So that would probably be somewhat helpful or can she not? It's challenging, I think, depending, because like she has ice in her veins, like the things that she can actually do to perform. It's like, oh my God, I would be, it just goes to show how, amazing of a performer and how dialed in she is the things that like i have to like check with hey this would drive me crazy is is this what you're experiencing or is this bothering you because there's ways to fix it but i don't want to change anything without actually asking you because if you know if this is what you're expecting or kind of like what you're dealing with or how you're performing is it bothering you there's ways to fix it and i think one of the things that i try to at least explain to her is that don't suffer in silence. Like if I can't fix it right away, mm. let me think on it. Or there's some things like I probably have three or four ways in my brain that I'd like, if you mention this, I know how to fix it, but I'm not going to change it unless you actually let me know that it's an issue. But I think I tell her as much as possible. Like I can work with anything you give me. Like I was saying before, if the snare sounds like the apocalypse or I can yeah. work with as much description as you give me, but I just don't want you to suffer in silence, which I think is like a very important thing for just monitor engineers in general to like have that rapport where I can fix a lot of the stuff that you have going on. But if I don't know about it, it's hard for me to do the gig appropriately. You know what I mean? Or prep you on, hey, this room is weird. So... Yeah, that's great. That's interesting that she's that flexible and malleable. Again, something that a lot of people might not think pop artists are or people, you know, so that's really interesting to hear. 
So before Billy, had you toured as a monitor engineer or no? No. So I, I guess most of my career touring wise was a rock, was a band guy. So I think I carried that like imposter syndrome for a little while <laughs> in terms of like, hey, you end up with this gig and like, you you know, the the touring community, it's a pretty small world. And like, who's this guy that has the gig that I've never heard of before? It's kind of like, right. I don't know if anybody ever thought that, but that's basically how I carried it in my head. Because I know, you know, once you start to participate in the community, you can kind of see everybody has a whole long list of accolades of how they've been touring for years. And it's like, it, it was very challenging for me to basically forgive myself for having a different path to get to where I am, but also not like diminishing. Like, hey, I'm good at the, I have the gig. I have the gig because I'm good at it. Just because my path is, you know, was a musician, that actually probably gives me a little bit more context to do the job better than the engineer who's never played in a band or toured or century. So I had to had to prep myself up to deal with that imposter syndrome for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's always really important to talk about. Everybody has that first gig. You know, mine was like Red Rocks with Rage Against the Machine. That was my first gig Amazing. that I mixed as a touring engineer, right? And I was just like. I had just done clubs before that. And everybody has to step through that hula hoop of like, oh my God, I'm terrified, but this is a whole nother level. And then you just do it or you fail and then you just kind of get back up. And I think what you hit on is really important, the communication. And a lot of artists don't have the vernacular to say what they're hearing. So always to kind of just keep prodding them until they feel heard or that you understand what they're saying. That's really great advice. Yeah, I think at least for monitors, it's so funny because it's such a hard, like what is the barometer for whether you're good at your job? I always make a joke. I said, well, if you're not getting fired is the barometer. (laughs) That's right. Because nobody can really hear what sounds good or what sounds bad, but also it's so like subjective and relative. Like what I think sounds good, the first thing I had to learn is like what I think sounds good is just to throw it out the window and just take my ego and throw it out the window because what I think sounds good could actually sound absolutely terrible to the artist. And I think that's that weird balance that you can probably relate to where if somebody doesn't have a preference, that's kind of where my personal preference to like, hey, this is what I think sounds good if somebody doesn't have a preference. But when somebody does, you have to just give them what they want. Like it's not up to me to say, to add a bunch of stuff, do a bunch of self-indulgent things that I think sound great when nobody was asking for it. I just ultimately... That's such great advice. The more that I dial in, the worse it usually gets if they're not asking for anything. Yep. I just get out of the way, ultimately speaking. Like, it's like, I know what they want. I can ask them the questions. And I think, like I said, the barometer, it's, it's just funny. Like, what's the barometer for a modern engineer? Not getting fired or getting yelled at? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess for you personally, like a lot of those gigs, like how what was you like, would you say that it's more mental, a lot of these opportunities? Because I think once you kind of realize I'm good at what I do, because they, they called me like my name's gotten around. I know I can do the gig. At what point for you was it like you realize it's more of a mental challenge? Yeah, I think it took a while. I think it wasn't until I got into real production that was I was carrying my own gear on sheds, you know, amphitheaters or I realized just what you said. The less that I do is better. Unless there's a problem, don't fix it. What's that? The enemy of good is better or something. There's some saying about that. But then also really making the environment very ritualized as far as they know what they expect when they come on stage. Totally. And also really getting into their uh, vernacular too. Like, how's it going? Standing out by them, listening with them side by side because it sounds so different out there. But anyways, this is just my things, not so much with in-ears. I have another question about your setup. I have never worked for an artist 
that I couldn't see them. And I saw a picture of you where there was like a video that you're actually watching video of her. So because it's such a large scale production, far bigger than anything I've ever done. How do you communicate if she's out on the thrust or out and something happens? So we have these two radio remote boxes that allow her, basically with her wireless mic, they essentially function as the hotshots, like the wired ones, where she needs to talk to me or anything. Hey, my pack's cutting out or somebody grab me a water, like I need my inhaler or whatever situation. She has one at the bottom of the thrust, like at the corner of the diamond where her waters are. And there's another one over by the drum riser where we strategically put them during the points where we're like, okay, we watched the show. This is where she would stop, take a break. The timing of the set is like, okay, it's 10 minutes. If she's having a hard time with the show or the room, she can talk to me and she can actually like look over and see me because the stage is so big and she can kind of peek over the edge um, if she needs to. So I have a camera. There's like one at the edge of the thrust. It's basically like, it's called like the, it basically follows her. It tracks her the whole show, I think through like facial recognition. And it basically gets like her whole body of where she moves on the stage. So I can actually see everything that's going on during the show, even though I physically can't see it. So I think for me to like not be visible, it's probably, it's more aesthetic for the creatives versus, hey, you have to see the artist to actually like do my job, which I would prefer to be able to see her. But as long as I can actually see whether her pack pops out or her ears or if she's like, I can physically see she's having a hard time with something, then I can just talk to her like, hey, everything good out there? And then she can talk to me if she needs to. That's great. You call them hot packs? I'd never heard that. Uh, yeah, there's the radio hot shots, like the little stomp boxes where it's like, oh, if you ever, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, it's like a, it's funny, like all of my audio, I'm not a, a numbers guy in terms of, you know, there's homies that can list out all the specs and the gear and the names and stuff. I'm like, what's the box and what's it do? Or what's it sound like? Was it blue with the button on the top? Like I'm so, yeah, that's me. I'm so not, you know, there's nothing wrong with it by any means, but at the end of the day, like I'm so not technical to an extent <laughs> where I'm like, oh, the hot shot, you know, the thing you're talking to, if you want to like not have people hear you. <laughs> Yeah. You know, it's funny you'd bring that up because I found that a lot of the texts that were my texts were really numbers people. And they were always the ones that I was so glad that they knew that. But a lot of the mixers I met are really, it's so much about who you are, how you communicate, what presence you bring, and obviously how well you mix. But it's funny you would bring that up because I'm I'm not an algorithmy like exponential calculator engineer. I've never been. Yeah, dude, it's so crazy because neither have I. Like again, like my, my imposter syndrome again. When you get to this level, you know. Yes. And for me, like I have never been like, hey, let's you know, let's have accolades as a monitor guy. People care that I have the gig. I think it'd be more embarrassing to tell everybody I have the gig and then lose the gig and tell everybody why I don't have it. <laughs> If like if I'm you know the, like if I'm super braggadocious about it like cool because at the end of the day it's just a job, but I am also comfortable that I have the job and like to me the things that makes me happy is like oh I'm part of her having a great show like I know she trusts me Truly. that that makes me more happier than anybody caring that I have the gig and I think one of the biggest things for monitors I think are like a lot of the advice that I try to give to people is like just be a vibe tech because I know so many people that are amazing engineers but they're terrible people. Or they're like, they don't know how to talk to people. Like I've seen so many gigs where you where the guy probably got fired because they just talked too much or said the wrong thing or didn't recognize what an artist's hot buttons are. Like there's probably so many gigs where somebody comes in as the hero and the only reason they the other person is not there is because like they would just argue or say something stupid or push a hot button every single day. And it's like, it, it's such an easy thing to do to just listen and say, oh yeah, cool, I'm working on it. I don't have an answer for you, I'm working on it. Or just acknowledge somebody's concern 
and just put your ego away. Like, this sounds really bad. There's been so many times where the hardest time for me is when we do rehearsals and we start over. Like, all the songs are new and everything's quick and, like, their expectations are what they are because, you know, that's what they expect. That's what they pay their crew to do. Like, I want it. I don't want to wait. So we have to get it quickly. And rehearsals, I get shredded for the most part. Like, because mm-hmm. like where they leave it is how they expect it to sound, which is to the crew, that's a testament to how much they trust us. But if it's, you get maybe two passes before they're like, this sounds terrible. What is happening? And I realize that sometimes when they say it sounds terrible, they might not necessarily be talking to me. They could be the guitar tone is not how I expected the sound of the record. That could be attributed to backline or she can hear one of the backing vocals that's too quiet that should be louder and she'll describe that as that sounds terrible and like for me it's like not to internalize that as oh my god let me start fixing everything let me start touching knobs immediately let me just take a step back and think before i just start touching knobs and actually make it hot for myself over there i think it's such like an important thing where the mental part of this gig is so understated i think And I think you can probably agree as well too, where just listening and being a good person of vibe tech is probably more important than the chops of mixing the gig. Because at the end of the day, you know, I have hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of audio gear. All the boards to me essentially do the same thing at this point. Can you get to somebody's mix as fast and do you listen? That's right. I love that you say that too. And just also who you present. I mean, and are you smiling? Because I often forget, you know, I mean, I get super nervous before every show, but think about them. And the last thing they need is their their anchor to be have a grimace on their face and look stressed out as they go out Dude, there. Totally. It's so, and I think even like as a performer, like I knew what that was like. And I have the context to know like, oh man, that monitor guy is sweating. Yeah. Are we good? We go on stage in two minutes, man. What is happening over there? And like, I don't want to see the monitor guy freaking out, like on patching something behind the rack two minutes before the show. No, and people do that to them. And it's just a terrible thing. So that's, I love that you're talking about artist relations stuff. How about with Phineas and how do you, how is he and what sort of challenges do you have with his rig? Yeah. So the Billy rig is the Phineas rig. We actually okay. use both rigs, at least for audio control. We use both uh, packages for, for Phineas, which is great. I think the thing between Billy and Phineas, they're, I know where I can take liberties and where I can't. I know mm-hmm. what I can like, hey, let me, this to me sounds like I can clean it up and make it better, but I also know what not to touch because I know they'll be like, what changed? Their ears are incredibly sensitive to panning. It's unbelievable. Like it's like the minute they hit a note, it's mono. I'm like, is it? I'm like, oh my God, it totally is. <laughs> like I, and they can hear it instantly. So like we're hyper aware of like, that's a hot button. Like the panning has to be where it needs to be in the mix. It needs to like actually be how they hear it because that's something where if I change that 1%, they'll know that. They can hear. That's interesting, yeah. Yes, I know they're sensitive to volume and perceived loudness as well too. So I know what I can get away with. If I do make a change, I have to compensate for it to kind of like, and this is where I was saying before, is it making it better or worse? Do I need to be doing this? Or is anybody complaining? All right, I'm going to leave it alone. Or, hey, this actually, I need to make this cleaner because it's distorting or there's not enough headroom. Like I know what to do to make those adjustments. Yeah, that's great. And how about for the live drummer? Is there anything in your monitors that you can recommend to people who are mixing ears for a live drummer? Just because it's such a different challenge for them a lot of times, especially if there's a lot of vocal mics that are open and 
you know? It's crazy. It's such an amazing tool for a performance and art, like just the technology behind just your drivers, everything they can put in these little in-ears. But the thing that's always a bummer is the price point. And I think the hardest part to like, I have the luxury to be able to, over the years of doing this, to try a bunch of different ones to know like what somebody's looking for, to spend 1500 bucks, be like, oh man, this is my first experience and it's actually not what I need because, you know, every in-ear company has 47 models of in-ears. Like it's hard to, <laughs> it's hard to kind of figure that out. So I think a lot of the questions that I ask would be, what are you trying to achieve? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then you can, do you want to hear more cymbals? Do you want to hear more drums? Do you want more low end? Every drummer wants low end. I think all the ears can reproduce low end if you're used to wedges and generics. Like any mold is going to be infinitely better. But I think with Andrew, he's on the A12Ts from 64 Audio. And I think for him, the high end clarity in those, so it can really catch the dynamics of his cymbals because he's an incredibly dynamic drummer in terms of he could go to like just Animal Smash style or to like, the jazz drummer, he can use mallets. So like, I think for him, the A12Ts or the 64s have this high level of clarity in the high end that I think can reproduce your dynamics. But I think when I was trying to determine which, what to put Billy and Finn on, that high end information, I don't think was would have been as good at this particular phase in their career. It would have been more information that I needed to reproduce and just their music in general doesn't have a ton of that like, super, super top crystal clear and high end that in a concert environment, like that's, I don't need that. That's going to do more bad than good. I'm going to end up having to take it out or manage it. Um, so for Andrew, it was, when I took the gig, he was already on 64. So he kind of was grandfathered into like, okay, well, I, I know how these sound. I'm not going to change anything. So I think one of the tours, I had to recreate his whole mix because the drums sounded too clean. It's like, hey man, mm. I'm having a hard time hearing my dynamics because the drums are too clean. <laughs> that's interesting. And that's a good ask. I'm curious. I mean, do you you must use a lot of scenes that you're switching for every song, right? Yep. So to me, that was always really a lot of stress when you're setting it up because of the panning thing, because of one little thing that doesn't translate or you can have to wipe a mix and then create it during the show. How do you work with your scenes? I mean, do you love it and you're all dialed in and happy or do you find any challenges with it? Scenes are very, very challenging, but also at the same time, they're like the best case thing. And like, I think one of the workflows that I love so much about the DLive is that it allows me to not be stupid and make a really bad choice. So I, I call them landmines. Like when you have a scene, like when I fire a scene, the way my workflow with this particular desk is that no matter what song I save, I know that my settings are the same for each person, if that makes sense. So if I start a new song, hey, we're working on a new song, guys, today, and I save this, I know that the preferences for Billy, Phineas, and Andrew are going to be the same for every single song. So if I fire a song from eight months ago, I know that it's not going to like recall something that I didn't expect it to do. That's the scary part. Yeah, and that's like the the hardest part is like, I guess being organized and knowing what you're doing and when you're saving a scene, I think is the most important thing. But it's also a great thing because like, it allows me to really, really fine tune somebody's preferences to each song. Like for some songs, like for me, the challenge is try to get as much information and clarity in Billy's mix that's not the crowd and the ambience of the room. So if there's a drum, a song where there's no drums or no overheads, those overheads are picking, there's just a little, you know, 12 drum mixers adding a little bit of just stuff into that mix that 
I could get that's one DB ahead of him if I pull all that out. So I can automate those changes in a scene where if it's an acoustic song, I don't need that, that information there for no reason. So, But for Andrew, the drummer, he might want to keep that ambience there. So I can make those decisions based on what the actual environment is and like, what does this song need for this person to perform? It's kind of how I approach the scenes. And the D-Lab allows me to really not bury myself in just what did I do six months ago? Like I know every single day what this person's preferences are. <laughs> that's that's really great advice for scenes. Um, and it's always, I mean, thank you. And I think it, we're kind of out of time as far as, oh, is, no. there, is there anything that you, that I didn't ask you that you'd want to talk about or any um, thing you would want to tell engineers that were just starting out or? Yeah, I think it's in tune to like kind of what the, the sound girls like actually is. So, during the pandemic, I had done a bunch of panels and stuff and got a really good opportunity. I've never actually met Carrie in person, but I've just visibly seen her through panels and whatnot. And there was a really rough time for me just getting destroyed in rehearsals where you just your confidence is shattered. What is happening? And somebody that's been doing it for 20 years, I kind of just pinged her and said, hey, you got like, maybe can I just talk to you on the phone? I'm having a really tough go at this right now. And like, I talked to her and I think one of the questions you would ask is like, what is like a... Uh, a mistake that you made or something like that. I think it's really important to humanize mistakes. So like, hey, this level, the level of perfection is relative, but also being able to like make mistakes and learn from them and grow from them and actually give yourself like when you make, when I make a really bad mistake, it gives me horrific anxiety to like don't sleep for days. And like, it's a whole process. And I think that one portion of it, I would love to talk about if we still have a little bit of time because I called her just to get perspective, like, and she's Pearl Jam's monitor engineer, and she's the one of the co-founders of Sound Girls for everybody who doesn't know. But it's, so I would love for you to tell that. Yeah. So I called her and was like, all right, so here's the deal. Your boy's getting crushed out here. Like, I don't feel great. I feel like I'm not doing a good job. I'm getting yelled at every single day. I guess in your 20-year career, can you kind of walk me through what that's like? Because, I mean, if you've been doing this for Pearl Jam for over 20 years, there's had to been days where they were just bummed out. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, Carrie's not hitting it over here. What is happening? Like, you lose their trust. And that's where I felt I was. So, like, I think there's not too many people where I have the bat phone where I can call and say, hey, walk me through that process of, like, just how you overcame that. And I think hearing her stories, if I made mistakes, like, I thought this, she was telling me one day where she had the, the 5D and, you know, the Yamaha 5D was like the first digital console that came out. It was great. But then they released the version with the head amp changes in it. And one day everything just sounded different. Couldn't quite pinpoint what it was. And it was just a little bit of latency that that console introduced in the new version models. It should have been the same, but it wasn't. It was enough where Eddie would notice it in the wedges with latency. Like my voice sounds weird. What is going on? One day she just, I don't know how long it took them to just her getting yelled at every day. It sounds terrible. What is happening? What did you change? Put it back. She fired and put in a little like, well, whatever. There's a Mackie 1604 in the corner. Let's set that up. Who cares? Just, <laughs> I have nothing to lose. Set it up. And it's like, oh yeah, sounds great. Whatever you did, love it. And then that kind of prompted her to go back and say, what is the difference? Like, why is this one sound better than this? And it's like, oh, this little small change in like the delay compensation was enough where he could hear like 0.5 milliseconds through the wedges of delay were enough where it drove him crazy. And it's like, well, you figured that out. You have the relationship with them to like work through those issues. Your personal rapport was enough to not make excuses, say, hey, I'm still working on it. And like, 
the ultimate thing is that the person that would have came in to replace her, they would have been the hero, but ultimately ran into the same issue and then probably gotten fired again. And they would have just fired people one after the other because nobody was able to diagnose what was actually happening, but giving themselves some grace. So she talked me through a whole string of stories of like, okay, if you want to do this for the long term, forgive yourself, give yourself some grace, obviously get better and fix the problems, but nobody's perfect. And if you have the right rapport and the right attitude, you're going to be afforded some grace. So forgive yourself because if you start to go down and lose your confidence, it's really hard to get it back. And I think that was very kind of her. And I think that little bit, at least from the monitor perspective, is like, I can't stress how much this gig is mental than it is like at the chops at this point. Absolutely. I love that. I agree fully. And and also, you never know, I think what you said before about their vocabulary, if this sounds terrible to really figure out what sounds terrible, you know, because immediately it's so hard not to internalize that. And just forgive yourself and get to the bottom of it and also move on. You know, as quickly, I always find you have to move on from problems, even if um, even if you've solved them in a, in a kind of a helter-skelter way that you're not even sure is going to work. You know, I think just acting very confident until you figure it out and have some time alone is always really important. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I love that you, that that was the last thing that you wanted to say. I, I think it could be the most valuable. And people do get fired, you know, and, and people live through it. Yeah, I think the day where I don't have this gig, I always tell myself, my God, I want to control it. It's on my terms. I try not to be crippled by the reality of, hey, if you make a mistake, you could get fired. Because I think that's important as well, too, to like try to maintain this level of perfection where you can't make a mistake. Because then it's the crippling anxiety associated with it. But also there could be one day where she decides she doesn't want to tour anymore because movies make more money. Or she could want an all-female crew. There's so many things outside of my control that if I were just to dwell on like the the things that I can control in the day-to-day, it's like, all right, let's just control those and try to have a good gig and move on. You make a mistake, just don't make the same mistake too many times in a row. And if you do, you got to fall on the sword, talk it through, and hopefully you have enough you know, rapport with the relationship with your artist where you don't get fired. But if you make 10 mistakes, often like it's almost inevitable in any gig, not just music. You know what I mean? That's right. That's right. And it's just about, yeah, being open and, and willing to take criticism and fix it. Yeah. So I guess the last thing I would love is I always ask everybody this to give a, give like a full record recommendation, like top to bottom album that you listen to that's old, new, whatever, but that you Ooh. just holds up and that you love. Man. So I would say, I think anything, Erica Badu is probably like my favorite artist, like mm. one of the best. I think Mama's Gun is such an amazing record. D'Angelo Voodoo is such an amazing record. Just that whole like, production team between Pino, Questlove, and James Poyser. And like that whole particular style of music was just so refreshing. And so I I love intent when somebody's like, oh, I can tell you're trying to like, this is created with so much intent and love and you guys are in a vibe and they call it in the pocket. Everything is just, although the mojo is working, it's just in the, everything's in the pocket. And you can tell when like, oh, that was a specific moment in time. And I think any of those records. And then recently this artist, Dijon, incredible, I think probably one of my favorite artists in the probably the past 10 years of just doing a lot of really, really interesting stuff with folk music as a black artist. I don't even know if it even like to put it in a box is even doing it any justice. Um, But yeah, Dijon, very, very amazing new artist. Salim, I, I can't even tell you how much I enjoyed talking to you and how much you gave our audience. I appreciate it. 
Ah, thank you for having me. This is a, a pleasure. You, generally, you don't get to talk nerd stuff, I call it, for people who don't care. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And all these, and most of the people care. That's why they're listening. So, uh, and also just fabulous production too. And have a great tour. I know you guys are setting out and safety to everybody. Thank you so much. I appreciate the time. So thank you for everybody for listening. At Sound Girls, our mission is to inspire and empower the next generation of women in audio and music production. We provide you tools, knowledge, and support to further your careers. And we do it because we care. So follow us on Instagram at SoundGirlsPod, and you can find a huge amount of info on upcoming workshops and job resources at SoundGirls.org. Looking for more audio-related podcasts? Check out our friends at the Audio Podcast Alliance. To see all of the other podcasts in the Alliance, make sure to visit audiopodcast.org. The executive producers of the Sound Girls podcast are Becky Campbell and Susan Williams. This episode was produced by me, Rebecca Wilson, and edited by Robbie Mortimer. Our theme song was written and recorded by Jess Fenton. And we send a big thank you to our sponsors, QSC, who, like Sound Girls, also wants to help empower you with the right tools, support, and service to help you create impactful connections. Find out more at soundgirls.org and qsc.com.